Hello, everyone. Welcome to Joe's Pub. Uh, my name is Amanda Stern. I'm the host and curator of the Happy Ending Music and Reading Series, which you are currently attending. Um, well, thank you. Um, apparently, you're in the right place. For those of you who actually intended to go see the seven-hour performance of Gats um, and, and have uh, found yourself here, uh, that show has closed, but I'm still feeling the holiday spirit a bit, so... Um, I'm going to accommodate you, and what we're going to do is at the 90-minute mark, which is when this show ends, we're just going to start again. So we're going to uh, loop the show uh, until like 2 a.m. Um, so we'll do like four or five showings of it. So you're totally accommodated. You're welcome. Um, so I'm really glad you guys are all here, um, and I, I hope you had a great New Year's. Did, did you have a great New Year's? Yes? Good. Did you uh, make any resolutions? No, never. Hell no. Hell no. Sorry, no, never. You were sort of beat out by hell no over here. Uh, nothing in the middle. What, lazy? What's the problem? Kinder, gentler. You want me to be kinder and gentler? Or that was your wish for you? Because that is not going to happen. I've tried. Uh, we've all tried. Everyone has tried. Um, so, well, I, maybe you, you know, I don't know, maybe one or two of you made a resolution or not, but um, I actually am sort of an overachiever. So I actually I finished all of mine by the 28th. Um, so I guess technically I won. So tonight's show is a celebration of my two years here at Joe's Pub. Um, yes, I'm extremely happy. I was, I was a little bit afraid to make a big deal out of it in case the staff at Joe's Pub was like, oh, my God, really? It's been that long? Hmm. Time to renegotiate some contracts. But I thought maybe I would get away with it since I'm on stage doing it, and what are they going to do, bum rush me? Maybe. But um, anyway, so the theme tonight is um, old friends and new friends, which is by far the most manipulative theme I've ever come up with. Um, if you listen closely, you might actually be able to hear Michael Cunningham explain our personal history to my mother, who is grilling him in the green room. We're not friends! Yeah, so... Um, we're not really friends. I've never met him. Well, I met him tonight. Um, but I'm calling him a new friend because that's what you do when you want to be friends with someone, right? <laughs> so anyway, so seven years ago, um, I started this series in a small uh, bar in Chinatown, and um, Ann Holmes and Nellie Reifler were two of the three inaugural readers, um, and I credit them for the series' success entirely. Um, five years later, when I... Um, decided to leave that bar to come here, I asked Nellie and A.M. to return and usher out the series that they helped to launch. So it seemed only fitting that tonight, when I celebrate my two-year anniversary at Joe's Pub, that I bring back the two authors who've been an integral part of the soul of Happy Ending. So they are my old friends. And um, Sam Amadon and Thomas Bartlett have become um, my, my newer friends who have participated in Happy Ending several times since I've been here at Joe's Pub, and, um, and Michael Cunningham is my best friend who um, I met, met tonight, and um, we have a lot of big plans. Actually, next Christmas, um, I'll be going home to meet his family for the first time. Um, okay, so the first author of the night is someone I've um, known since I was uh, two years old, 
Nellie Rifler, I've known since I was two years old, um, and uh, we were not friends because she was older and she preferred other people. Um, she wasn't much older, mind you, so it was uh, an insult. Um, and I was scarred until later uh, when I met her again, many decades later, and we became fast friends because our books came out. Our first books came out at the same time. And um, they, what they do, I don't know for those of you who aren't published authors, when you um, <laughs> go on tour, um, they pair you up according to size. So, um, so with my, my first novel came out, it didn't matter the length of the novel. It actually, my length mattered. So uh, when they saw what I, my height, they, they were like, oh, Nellie. So they put us together because that's what you do, how you tour. So um, Nellie Reifler is uh, the author of See Through, a collection of stories. Her work has been published in McSweeney's, Post Road, Bomb, and the A.M. Holmes edited fiction issue of Nerve, among others. Sometimes she lives in Brooklyn. Usually she lives in Saugerties. She was the first person ever to take a risk at happy ending, and that is not a lie. It's my great pleasure to give you one of my best friends in the entire world, Nellie Reifler. everybody. Uh, I just wanted to congratulate Amanda on her two-year anniversary with Joe. So if we could have another round of applause for Amanda at Joe's Pub. So you know how sometimes when poets read, they have those preambles where they explain the poems like they say, it's important for you to know that the Sami word for snow is whatever. Um, and so I've always been envious of poets and their preambles, and I finally have a story that requires a preamble. Um, so the story I'm going to read tonight was written for the great website Underwater New York. How many people here know Underwater New York? Another round of applause. Uh, it's an anthology at www.underwaternewyork.com where they collect writing and art based on objects found in the waterways around New York City. So the story I'm going to read is inspired by a Formica dinette set that sits underwater in the East River. And um, the other thing that's good for you to know is that uh, the first couple of sentences and some other sentences are stolen from vintage Formica ads from the 50s and 60s. So this is Formica Dinette. There is a definite trend toward making mother a member of the family again. With the use of lovely Formica colors and beautiful wood grains, there is every reason to plan an open kitchen that is part of the dining room, living room. A licensed Formica fabricator will aid you in matching the wood grain of your new countertops with the sheets of plywood covering your windows, and the metal cabinet fixtures, knobs, hinges, etc., will be custom-picked to match the spikes affixing the plywood to your window frames. If you indeed decide to begin including mother in your everyday doings, your licensed Formica fabricator will assist you with the transition. We at Formica always have grace and efficiency in mind, and we recommend timing the reintroduction of mother to coincide with your kitchen renovations. 
Family members, such as mother, who live in basements for extended periods of time, may develop unsightly and bothersome problems. If you haven't been supplementing her SpaghettiOs and Pinto beans with vitamin D in tablet or capsule form, mother may have acquired osteomalacia, a disorder of the long bones. She may have a serotonin imbalance, a condition that can easily be cured by prayer. Mother may be disoriented mentally and spatially. This is just one more reason we suggest timing mother's emergence with the kitchen redo. We at Formica are sure you agree that it's easier than having to deal with mother being disoriented once now and then again later. Your Formica fabricator will be on call in the event that this is the case. Your Formica fabricator is quite a mouthful, isn't it? Let's call your Formica fabricator Trent. As mother will have been in the basement for such a long while, she'll need some updating too, just like your kitchen. Trent is specially trained and certified to outline the facts about the world from which you have so lovingly protected her these past several or many years. Trent will explain to mother with great patience about the coming revolution. He'll soothe her maternal worries by reassuring her that in these final days, good folk like mother and her sons can survive with wiles and armaments until a greater power takes over. If she furrows her brow, Trent will press his gentle hand to her hand and inform her that the house, the 4.2 acres upon which it sits, and the air that she breathes have been inspected and declared 100% demon-free. Look, Trent will say to mother, here are your sons, your good sons, David, there by the front door. You named him for a king, and doesn't he look quite the king with his rifle at the ready? Trent will coaxingly turn mother's chin toward what used to be the laundry room. And there, see John, the youngest, he's grown up to be the handy one. Isn't it nifty how he fireproofed that chamber? Aren't those just about the nicest handmade grenades you've ever seen? If mother can speak and mother asks why John is dressed that way, Trent will explain about the lawless radicals plotting ill deeds in the woods and the heathen county government and the possessed school teachers drinking and contaminating children's blood with that virus and the encroaching foreigners and the infiltrating foreign-borns with the computer chips under the skin of their left forearms and the painted preteen sex robots planted in our midst by the Chinese. And Trent will remind mother about Sodom and Gomorrah and assure her that our good God gave us camo for a reason. John's a brave boy too, mother, Trent will say to mother. Every dawn and evening he patrols this parcel that was your father's and your grandfather's. He's silent as an angel, never rustles a leaf nor snaps a twig, and you have young John to thank for the buried gas line encircling the land. It will really come in handy when the final battle starts to rage in earnest. Then Trent will open his case and show mother the sample chips of formica and let her decide whether she likes a solid color or something with an agate or granite look. Thank you.
so the, the next uh, author of the night um, is A.M. Holmes, who was the second author of the night seven years ago at the Old Bar. A.M. Holmes is the author of the novels This Book Will Save Your Life, Music for Torching, The End of Alice in a Country of Mothers and Jack, as well as the short story collections Things You Should Know and the Safety of Objects, the travel memoir Los Angeles, People, Places, and the Castle on the Hill, the artist book Appendix A, and The Mistress's Daughter, a memoir. Her work has been translated into 18 languages and um, <laughs> appears frequently in Art Forum, Harper's, Granta, McSweeney's, Vanity... Did I miss one? Impossible. Granta, McSweeney's, Vanity Fair, Bomb, and Blind Spot. She lives in New York City, and it's my great pleasure to give you A.M. Holmes. This is a story that I wrote for the English artist Rachel Whiteread, and it's odd. Um, and in it, there's a, a person who has a feather I remember thinking, I'm not sure this is even possible for a person to have a feather. And I, I gave it to Rachel, and I said, you know, let me know if you have any problems with the stories. And she called me, she goes, it's so amazing. I knew someone who had a feather, which to me just meant that I got it right. All day the building collapse haunts her. She keeps seeing the sticky guy sweeping sweaty strands of hair across his scalp, pasting them down. He's slimy, slithering, slipping in and out of lies. She has a sensation of great weight, of something falling on her. She feels out of breath, but keeps moving to keep herself from feeling trapped. Back at the office, people bring her samples, combinations of things. They want to know what goes with what, what brings success, power, what juxtapositions spell trouble. They want to know how she knows what she knows. Did you study Feng Shui? In the afternoon, she visits her mother. The doors of the nursing home open automatically, and a cool disinfectant smell pours out, vacuum sealed, frozen in time. There's an easel by the main desk. Good afternoon. The year is 2012. The day is Wednesday, May 16th. The weather outside is sunny and bright. Her mother's unit is behind a locked door. There's a sign on the wall. Look as you are leaving. Make sure no one follows you. Her mother doesn't know her anymore. It happened over the course of a year. The first time, she pretended it was a mistake. Of course you know me, she said, and her mother seemed to catch herself. But then it happened again. It happened more. And then sometimes she knew her and sometimes she didn't. And then she didn't. Every day she visits. She brings her camera. She takes a picture. It is her way of dealing with the devastation the rug pulled out from under. Hello, she says, walking into the room. Hello, her mother repeats, a parrot echoing. How are you today? How are you today? I'm good. She sits at the edge of her mother's bed, unfastening her mother's long grays and brushing her hair. Remind me, her mother says, who are you? I'm your daughter. What makes you so sure? Because I remember you, she says. From before? her mother asks. She nods. My sock is itching, her mother said, rubbing the tag around her ankle. All the residents are tagged, and an alarm goes off if they wander out. The tag leg is alternated, but it remains an irritant. What can we do, the nurses say? We don't want to lose anyone, do we? She rubs lotion on her mother's legs, and she puts a chestnut in her mother's pocket, just as she once saw her mother do to her grandmother to ward off backaches. She puts an orange she picked this morning on the nightstand, resting on a bed of clover. Protection, luck, vision, she takes her mother for a walk in the wandering garden, an inconspicuous circle. You always end where you begin. It guarantees no one gets lost. She visits her mother, and then she visits the other women up and down the hall. Imagine us, they say, sitting here like lame ducks. We see it all. There but for the grace go I. Hey, you look familiar, one says. I know you from somewhere. You know me from here, she says. The sea. 
She drives to the ocean and parks. She takes a picture. She finds the fact that she is not the only one moving, calming. She's a navigator, a mover, a shifter. She's flown as a gull over the ocean. She's dived deep as a whale. She spent an afternoon as a jellyfish floating, as an evergreen with the breeze tickling her skin. She spent two days as water and found it difficult to recover. She's in constant motion, trying to figure out what comes next. It is early evening. The sky is charcoal, powdery black. Everything is a little fuzzy around the edges and sharp and clear in the center. She's a coyote at the edge of the grass, her spine elongated, her nose pushing forward and her skull rolling back. There's something slippery about the coyote, a million years of motion of shifting to accommodate, keeping a fluid boundary. She's coated in a viscous, watery solution. She digs through the bushes. There's a girl in the backyard floating alone on a raft in the water. She walks to the pool, dips her tongue into the water and sips. She hears the girl's mother and father in the house shouting. What am I to you, the mother says. It's the same thing, always the same thing. Blah, 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 the father says. Your life is a movie, the coyote tells the girl. It's not entirely real. Tell me about it, the girl says. The coyote starts to change again, to shift. Her skin goes dark, it goes tan, deep like honey, and then crisper brown like it is burning, and darker still towards black. Downy feathers begin to appear, then longer feathers, quills. Her feet turn orange, fold in and web. A duck, a big black duck, a crow, a Labrador, but a duck. The duck jumps into the pool and paddles towards the girl. They float in silence. And suddenly the duck lifts her head as if alerted. She pumps her wings and rises from the water. She's heavy, too heavy to be a duck. Her body is changing again. She's trading feathers for fur. A black mask appears around her eyes. Her bill becomes a snout. She's standing on the flagstone by the pool, a raccoon with orange-webbed feet. She waddles off into the night. And that's that. So uh, the final reader of the night is Michael Cunningham, um, also known as my best friend forever um, and the sharpest dresser, I think, in this um, neighborhood. It's true, you'll see. Um, Michael Cunningham is the author of the novels A Home at the End of the World, Flesh and Blood, The Hours, winner of the Penn Faulkner Award and Pulitzer Prize, um, and Specimen Days. His latest novel is By Nightfall. He lives in New York, and it's my great honor and pleasure to give you my new best friend in the entire world, Michael Cunningham. Thank you. Thank you. Wow. I'm going to read a brief section from my new novel, By Nightfall. It's about a married couple named Peter and Rebecca, and this is when they were just dating, and Rebecca had taken Peter to meet her family in Virginia. By the end of the weekend, Peter had lost count of his infatuations. There was Cyrus's study, a study, with its profoundly comfortable sway-backed armchair in which it seemed you could sit and read forever. There was Beverly's applauded, if failed, attempt to impress Peter by baking a pie, which was known afterwards as that goddamned inedible pie. 
There was the upstairs window through which the girls had escaped at night, the three lordly and lazy old cats, the shelves crowded with books and elderly board games, and seashells from Florida and framed, rather haphazard-looking photographs, the faint smells of lavender and mildew and chimney smoke, the wicker porch swing on which someone had left a rain-bloated paperback copy of Daniel Deronda. That night in bed, Peter said to Rebecca, this is so incredibly lovely. What? All of it. Every single person and object. Well, it's just my crazy family and my creaky old house. He said, you have no idea. What? How normal most families are. You think my family is abnormal? No, normal isn't the right word. Prosaic. Standard. Well, I don't think anyone is prosaic. I mean, some people are more eccentric than others. This is interior. Peter's not saying this to her. Milwaukee, Rebecca. Order. And I know. I, I knew I'd offend somebody with that. Um, order and sobriety and a devotion to cleanliness that scours out the soul. Decent people doing their best to live decent lives. There's nothing really to hate them for. They do their jobs and maintain their property and love their children most of the time. They take family vacations and visit relatives and decorate their houses for the holidays, collect some things and save up for other things. They're good people, most of them, most of the time. But if you were me, if you were young Pete Harris, you felt the modesty of it eroding you depopulating you, all those little satisfactions and no big dangerous ones, no heroism, no genius, no terrible yearning for anything you can't at least in theory actually have. If you were young, lank-haired, pustule-plagued Pete Harris, you felt like you were always about to expire from the safety of your life, its obdurate sensibleness, that Protestant love of the unexceptional the eternal certainty of the faithful that flamboyance and the macabre are not just threatening, but worse, uninteresting. Rebecca said, eh, if you grew up here, you'd probably feel a little less romantic about it. Your sister doesn't like me, does she? What makes you say that? Oh, I don't know, a feeling, I guess. No, she's protective is all, which is funny. She's the wild one. She is, huh? Oh, probably not so much anymore, but in high school, she was wild. Uh-huh. How wild? Oh, I don't know. Regular wild. She had sex with different boys, that's all. Tell me a story or two. <laughs>